today's spoken edition of Slate. The U.S. will never ban porn. Thank goodness. By Christina Carterucci. Every few months, some public figure comes up with the brilliant idea that porn is bad for women. They worry that teens will never have normal, pleasurable sex if all they watch is gangbangs, that porn allows misogyny to sustain and replicate itself, and that women learn to be aroused by their own degradation when they see ejaculatory facials on screen. None of these arguments are exactly wrong. All things considered, the porn industry as it currently exists probably makes real-life sex worse than, say, a porn landscape that only models loving, gentle relationships would. But every time a porn pushback, and the attendant pushback to the pushback begins, actual facts about the industry and teenage sexual behavior get lost in the ahistorical wailing of activists who aren't concerned about women's well-being or sexual fulfillment at all. There's considerable disagreement over the current state of the porn debate and whether no one or everyone is talking about it. In a Sunday op-ed entitled, Let's Ban Porn, conservative New York Times columnist Ross Douthat patronizes to the hashtag MeToo movement, writing that it clearly wants to talk about pornography, even if it doesn't quite realize that yet. On the flip side is porn actor Connor Habib, who wrote a much-discussed Twitter thread claiming that, quote, a cultural movement to ban pornography is building right now. Somewhere in the middle is a recent reported piece from the New York Times magazine, in which Maggie Jones hangs out with teenagers in a Boston, quote-unquote, porn literacy program that teaches them how to interpret porn with a critical eye. Both Habib and Douthat are wrong to believe that the U.S. could or would ever ban or even heavily restrict pornography. U.S. free speech law gives adult media makers a wide berth to create and disseminate to consenting adults nearly any pornographic content they can dream up. Even so far as the Supreme Court leans conservative, its justices are unlikely to allow regulations passed to curb personal and commercial expression that causes no easily traceable public harm. This is one reason why the only movements against porn in the United States have been marginal and quickly quashed. Consider one of the most famous feminist anti-porn activists, Andrea Dworkin, whose legislative efforts in the 80s fell flat when her law declaring pornography a civil rights violation against women was deemed unconstitutional before it could spread beyond the city limits of Indianapolis. Most other anti-porn crusades have been religiously motivated, but have still failed where other pet causes of the Christian right, abortion and LGBTQ rights, for instance, have succeeded. In Utah, one of the most conservative and religious states in the Union, the best the legislature has been able to do on pornography is to issue a non-binding resolution declaring it a public health crisis that makes men more likely to cheat and less likely to want to marry, a concern Douthat echoes in his op-ed. The other reason why the U.S. will never ban porn is that many, many, many people watch it. The people making laws, the people voting for people who make laws, even the people arguing for anti-porn laws, most of these people probably watch porn. It's hard to get accurate data on porn viewership, for obvious reasons, but surveys have found that one in three women watch porn at least once a week and that nearly two-thirds of men watch porn at least once a month. It would be impractical and unpopular to try to ban something that so many people want and use uneventfully on a regular basis. 
More importantly, the arguments for banning pornography seem to be confused about the actual problem. Porn itself isn't a social ill. Misogyny is. Men don't foist unlubricated anal sex on semi-willing women in porn in a vacuum. If porn narratives sublimate female desires and feature more choking than communication, it's because they're a product of a culture that devalues women at every stage of their lives. Porn is not the only venue, or even the principal venue, in which men learn to demean women and women learn to accept mistreatment. Look to the White House, where multiple sitting and recently departed men, including the president, have been accused by multiple women of sexual and physical abuse, but continue to enjoy the privileges and powers of an administration beloved by rank-and-file Republicans. Porn is not even the primary media disseminator of female degradation. Women's subjectivity is lost in many mainstream films and television shows, which depict women through the eyes of male writers and directors, drop all interest in women once they turn 30, and only put a beautiful woman on screen if she's a love interest. One teen interviewed by Jones in her New York Times magazine piece cited Fifty Shades of Grey, a film in wide release, as an example of where he learned that women like to be dominated. Another mentioned a porn whose female protagonist was bored by a man who approached sex gently but became ecstatic with a far more aggressive guy. That tiresome trope is at least as old as Hollywood itself. It's funny that Douthat positions his anti-porn argument as a companion piece to Jones's story, when the latter counters almost every point Douthat sets out to prove. Teens tell Jones they wish they had a place to learn about sex home, school, a community sex ed program, but absent that, learn about sex from porn. Rather than offering a porn ban as a solution, a thinking person might suggest we give teens other opportunities to learn about healthy sexual relationships, starting with comprehensive sex education in all U.S. schools. If a kid said she wanted to eat healthy food but can only find vegetables in dumpsters, we'd enroll her in a free lunch program. We wouldn't ban dumpsters. Porn can also do some good if it's created under ethical circumstances by producers and directors with a healthy conception of sex. Jones's article notes that for gay and bisexual youth, porn can provide affirmation that they are not alone in their sexual desires. If you've ever wondered or heard someone ask, how do lesbians have sex? You can imagine what a queer teenager might gain from lesbian porn made for and by women and trans people. The bad things Douthat Jones and others worry porn does, like make anal sex a seeming foregone conclusion for sexually active teens, can be more effectively prevented by affirmative measures than by criminalizing a widely available and highly sought-after genre of media. Studies have shown that teenagers sometimes opt for anal sex to avoid pregnancy. Better sex education and availability of contraceptives would help teens make whatever informed choice they want. And if men feel that women owe them anal sex and women feel that they can't say no, that's not all on porn. The larger problem is twofold. Young women don't have the confidence to demand what they want or the resources to help them learn about their own bodies, and young men don't feel comfortable being vulnerable or exploring ways of feeling good that aren't tied to humiliating women or submitting to hegemonic notions of masculinity. The solution to this problem begins with more discussions about sex, not less, and certainly not censorship. Affirmative consent, 
That crazy concept that asks sexual partners to discuss what sexual things they want to do before they do them would seem to be a natural cause for Douthit and his ilk to pick up. Some porn-watching teens are already getting the message. One of Jones's teens said he'd seen a woman kneeling, giving a standing man oral sex in a porn film. At one point, he thought that's how it might go one day when he had sex, Jones writes. But when he talked with his girlfriend, they realized they didn't want to reenact that power dynamic. He talked with his girlfriend after watching porn. This teenage relationship should serve as a model for how consent education and pornography might coexist in a healthy, sex-positive society. Would that all adults had such a mature, critical engagement with the media they consume? But even without any concealed investment in sex education, a porn ban would still do far more harm than good. When victimless behaviors and livelihoods are criminalized, the already marginalized suffer. Note how U.S. prostitution laws have made sex workers vulnerable to abuse, both from Johns and law enforcement officials. Porn performers would face similarly elevated risks if forced to ply their trades in a black market that would surely thrive. The good kind of porn, the kind that affirms minority sexualities and female pleasure, would be even harder to fund and distribute than it is today. Young people, who are already prosecuted for felonies in some states for merely sexting, would be funneled into the criminal justice system for seeking out sexual information they're not getting anywhere else. Fortunately, that dystopian future is nowhere near fruition. In a tweet promoting his op-ed, Douthit linked to a set of Gallup data on how Americans judge a series of moral issues. While many sexual taboos have fallen with de-Christianization, it's noteworthy that most Americans still do know that porn is bad, he wrote. This framing neglects some essential context. As the Gallup analysis explains, the 36% of Americans who deemed pornography morally acceptable in May 2017 marked a high point in U.S. history. In other words, more people than ever before are willing to tell a Gallup pollster that they approve of porn. That's only evidence of a crisis if your feminist activism extends no further than the annals of X-Tube.